You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. Getting excited to dive into this book. Before we read God's Word and dive into this, uh, let's clarify and, and get into a little bit of background of Luke. First off, we're going to be using the terminology of the Gospel of Luke. And some of you guys may be confused, especially if church is a little new to you. You may think and hear, what is the difference between the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, doesn't the Gospel of Luke point to the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. Uh, let me briefly explain that. Uh, remember when we use often, when we use the Gospel, uh, that is the good news, the message that our sin separates us from a holy, loving God that created us, but because of that sin, we are not in fellowship or relationship with Him. And Jesus Christ came down on earth as God, uh, Jesus' Son, and He took that penalty of sin upon Himself on the cross, we deserve that death. He died it for us. And so when he died on the cross and then three days later rose from the grave, showing, revealing that he has all authority, power, and victory over sin, Satan, and death, that is the good news of the gospel. And how we respond to the good news of the gospel is by, when hearing that message, believing in our heart of hearts that we repent of our sin and have saving faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is the gospel good news of Jesus Christ. And so when we say, pronounce, and proclaim, and share the gospel in order for one to be saved, that is what we are talking about. However, we will be using the gospels quite often, and that is kind of a whole different thing. That is the four narratives of Jesus' life and ministry in your scriptures, in the Bible. Now, that recording of Jesus' life and ministry does reveal what I just shared with you, the whole purpose of it, and the rest of the Bible is to share and show the need of that message of Jesus Christ. But as we will be using the terminology of the Gospels quite often over the next several months, I um, want you to know like that is a little bit different from what we're talking about, the good news of Jesus, although it does reveal that. In fact, when we say the Gospels, that little S added on plural, think of them as the synoptic Gospels, which sin means together, optic means see, see together on the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, telling the basic same story of Jesus from just different vantage points and views. And so, for gospel accounts, gospels in the Bible, many of you guys know them. Luke happens to be the longest of them. Uh, the book of Mark is 60. This is just in a regular kind of ESV standard Bible, 60 pages, 678 verses. The book of John is 73 pages, 869 verses. The book of Matthew, third longest book, 87 pages, 1,071 verses. And then what we will be studying is Luke, 96 pages, 1,151 verses. Verses. It is longer and more detailed because Luke wants to give certain important details from his unique vantage point as a historian of sorts, and Luke was also a doctor, uh, the only one of the four who was more than likely financed to work on this book. And because of that, he goes into greater research and even interviews than with those who had interacted with Jesus Christ. That's why it's a little bit more detailed in those ways. Know this about the book of Luke as well. Luke has a sequel. Of course, many of you guys know he wrote the book of Acts. Now, you may have not known this. When he wrote the book of Acts, he wrote it in succession with Luke. I know in your Bibles, you have, right, you have the, the, the four gospel counts, and the concluding one is John. It's Luke, then John, then Acts. Listen, this, if I was on that early church council, I would have, that would have been my carpet color moment, okay? I would have been, I would, my stake in the ground, it needs to be Luke, 
to Acts. I'm dying on this hill right now. The church is splitting if you're not doing this, okay? That would have been my moment right there. I would have lost. I would have been legalistic. It's okay, okay? But know this. Luke wrote his gospel in succession with Acts. That wasn't like, think of like movie terms. This is Lord of the Rings, not Dune, okay? Dune, they made a movie. They had to make sure it made enough money for them to make part two of the movie. Lord of the Rings, he made all three, all in one time, season, succession. It all, that's what Luke did. Luke wrote this in mind that I want you to see the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' life and ministry. A more detail, detailed account of it moving forward with the power within the church of moving forward with it. So that's pretty cool if you ask me. And we as a church, going back to our Centerpoint Church days, went through the book of Acts uh, for like four summers. I think it took us four summers to go through that. And, um, and so now, if you were with us during those times, you get to, be, get to be able to see part one, the book of Luke during this. And if you weren't, I have some good news for you. Uh, we are going to a little teaser uh, over this next year as even one of our objectives, and you'll hear in January, is uh, discipleship. Um, we're going to be asking all discipleship relationships, whether it's starting into one or if it is uh, uh, um, continuing from previous times. Uh, we're going to ask everybody to just take one short season and all go through the book of Acts together. And as we're reading Luke, for you to go and see a reminder of the book of Acts with that. You don't have to. Again, we're going to be encouraging that as a campaign for discipleship. So you will be able to do that. Luke wrote this book, these books together. And according to my opinion, one of the best commentaries out there, a guy named Darrell L. Bach had wrote this. And he said when he did that, listen, the center of Luke's concern is a detailed discussion of God's plan. He didn't want it to just end in people's hearts and minds. Again, with his ascension, he wanted to show God's plan in the early church and the work of the Spirit in that way. And so he made a, wrote a thorough and exhaustive as possible account of Jesus' birth, identity, ministry, teachings, death, resurrection, fulfillment, and carried out mission connecting to the church of then in the book of Acts and also today, which is part of the reason we want to study this. Although a majority of you, again, weren't here. We're excited to be able to study that in even comparison to the book of Acts. Verses 1 through 4 is a preface. These four verses that we're covering this morning is only one sentence. And if some of you guys are doing the math out there, especially our engineer or architect friends, and you're thinking, wait, the first sermon of this long series with the longest gospel is only the first sentence of the Bible? Yes, deal with it, okay? I'm just kidding. It's an important sentence, okay? Worth one sermon as it gives us an overview of what we're going to enter into. It is the only gospel that starts with an apologetics of sorts, which is considered as God's inerrant and authoritative word. It gives us affirmation and application on how to apply it in our potential doubts of Scripture and others. So let us read, a, read the one sentence together, all four verses, and then we will break it down verse by verse. God's word, the book of Luke, opens up chapter 1, verse 1, saying this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write 
an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So there's three things I want us to get out of these first four verses, this one sentence that's going to give us an overall kind of view of why we need to study this book. Number one, we see God's purpose, or we might want to say plan, for Luke's narrative in comparison to the other Gospels. And remember, when I say Gospels, I talk about Matthew, Mark, and John. Verse 1, starting out, says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's saying right off from the beginning, others have written about Jesus. Uh, this, of course, the book, the book of Luke was, li- was likely the third of the four Gospels that was written. Uh, Mark and Matthew's Gospels were more than likely the narratives Luke is referring to here since they were most likely written before. Most believe only the book of John was written after. Uh, there are some, I say some, a, a good amount of many that also believe he's talking about the other narratives of, the, again, G- Jesus, what he accomplished uh, besides Matthew and Mark. Uh, some believe he is also referencing a book called Q. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. And some of you guys are like, no, oh, I've heard of Q. Isn't that the far-right, deep-state conspiracy theory? Uh, they seem to disappear as of lately. No, that is not what I'm talking about. Different Q, different Q. Uh, Q here refers to the hypothetical source that many scholars have proposed as being used by the authors of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, but was never accepted as, again, God's word. It was a historical kind of account. Um, uh, that, that German word for quell is what the Q, which means source. And according to the two-source hypothesis, um, which is a, 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 it has been a widely accepted theory among certain scholars, uh, the Gospel of Mark served as one source for Matthew and Luke. And then another source, this, this mysterious book called Q, contained a collection of sayings and teachings of Jesus that were shared between Matthew and Luke and maybe Mark. However, many scholars also reject this potential additional source. And part of the reason why many will reject it is because many of the proponents of it also try to use it to disprove the inspiration of the scriptures, which we 100% fully believe. And in my humble opinion, as I was exposed and studied this in seminary, I don't think it matters. <laughs> there can be a source out there. We know there's other books out there, like the Gospel of Thomas, some of those potential things that we just don't accept as God's inspired word in Scripture because of what led to it. But it doesn't mean it wasn't, couldn't, shouldn't have been used. So in the end, it really doesn't matter. Uh, what we do know is he had these other, as he says, other narratives that he knew that other have written. They're important. Um, we will discuss the other narratives that we know for a fact Luke refers to. Um, and we'll just add, throw in John as well so you can see at least the comparison between Luke and the other Gospels. And what makes Luke unique to prepare our needed time in this book over the next few months and beyond. Um, if you read the introduction of all other three Gospels and then go back to this and compare it, again, you're going to see some differences. I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but if you read just the introduction to Mark, John, Matthew... It looks, it is going to be completely different from what we're going to be studying verse by verse over the next few months with Luke. Mark 1, 1 through 8 jumps straight to the prophecy fulfilled in John the Baptist, leading the way toward Jesus and writing Jesus' baptism uh, from John, uh, from John uh, which is the start of Jesus' ministry and teachings. Uh, that starts in the book of Luke at chapter 4, 
verse 14. And so you have four and a half chapters before what Mark starts with. Mark starts with no mention of birth, childhood, or even the teenage years of Jesus, which I cannot wait to preach a sermon on teenage Jesus, okay? John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 19, many guys know John exclusively kind of written his book to the Gentiles in comparison to the other three Gospels. He introduces Jesus as the beginning logos in light. He doesn't give details of similar to Mark childhood and birth, but still affirms and points to the prophecies fulfilled in his incarnation. And then like Mark, he jumps straight to John the Baptist, introducing Jesus in his baptism. Now, Matthew is the closest gospel to the book of Luke. It is the most detailed, orderly account of Jesus's both birth and life, teachings and ministry, and the passion of Jesus as well. Um, it gives, again, most detail in that way. Uh, unlike Luke, but still recording Luke, Matthew starts in chapter 1, verse 1, with the genealogy of Jesus, which we don't see that in Luke until chapter 3. And in between, John the Baptist foretelling Jesus as Messiah and the temptation to Jesus by Satan in the desert. Because these two are the most similar, but the differences, I'll quickly kind of share with you guys with that. Uh, first, the Annunciation, the kind of conception in Matthew. Matthew describes the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph. Luke instead narrates the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and announcing the conception of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And so it's kind of cool between the two. Matthew gives kind of comparison with Joseph, where Luke's more on, on with Mary's uh, kind of side and account. Uh, Bethlehem in the census, uh, Matthew indicates that Joseph and Mary were already in Bethlehem and G Jesus was born there. Luke mentions that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, went to Bethlehem because of a census. Uh, see some differences there. Uh, when it comes to the Magi and the flight to Egypt, Matthew tells of the visit of the wise men, the Magi, and the Holy Family's escape to Egypt to avoid King Herod's massacre of uh, babies and infants. Luke does not mention the wise men or the flight to Egypt, but instead he focuses on the presentation of Jesus in the temple of Jerusalem, uh, which I'm excited to, to go over. And then last of all, kind of the difference in uh, at least the beginnings of such books that we'll cover in the next few months, Matthew does not include the shepherds or angels in the narrative, and it's only Luke who describes the angelic announcement to shepherds uh, in the fields near Bethlehem, uh, who then visit the uh, newborn Jesus. So if we do put on a kid's play, we have to read from Luke, okay? Not the other Gospels. In the end, in spite of the differences, each Gospel account wants to show what Luke says here at the end of verse 1, what Jesus has accomplished among us. And he used that word accomplished, or some of your translations correctly translate it as fulfilled instead of a word like happen, because they all want to show how Jesus fulfilled the promises, specifically Old Testament prophecies and promises in these accounts. So that's some of the differences and why we should read in his purpose for Luke in comparison to the others. Two, we see in verses two through three why we can trust Luke and the other Gospels. Read with me first verse two. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. Right away, Luke points to the importance of eyewitnesses of Jesus and the apostles' work. And remember, when he mentions this, I think I mentioned this already, that doesn't even include Luke, who's writing this, because Luke's the only one of the four who wasn't with Jesus. He was with the apostle Paul after he was one that was more than likely financed to do extensive research of what happened. And he was with everybody else that was with Jesus. And he more than likely, more than the other three, interviewed them 
in preparation for writing this account. And he knows and includes in God's word right here the importance of the eyewitnesses in the apostles' work. The eyewitness authors of the New Testament, gospel and letters, they understood the power of such a testimony. They witnessed the word in the days where a written record was unnecessary, spoke to the word where they thought that Jesus would return pretty quickly, and then they wrote the word when they realized their eyewitness record would become scripture for those who followed them. That's how the ancient eyewitness accounts became New Testament scripture that we cherish and that we believe today. Following the death of the apostles, the early believers and leaders, they received apostolic eyewitness accounts and they regarded them as sacred. They knew the original eyewitnesses had vanished from the scene and they wanted to retain a faithful record of that testimony. And so from the earliest of times, these Christians coveted the New Testament writings. And in the days of the early church fathers, the word was again read as the sacred word of God. These gospel and letters were carefully protected. The earliest believers accepted the gospel and letters of the New Testament as eyewitness accounts because the author of such texts considered their own writing to be authoritative, authoritative eyewitness scripture. This is why we even see later on when the apostle Paul wrote in Peter, who was with Jesus, they wrote again, same thing what Luke says here, the importance of eyewitnesses in their epistles later after the Gospels. And one cool thing about this is even another guy's testimony and how God used this. Now, he has obviously used this in what we have in the Word today and what we can know about Jesus today. But there was a cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles, California, named J. Warner Wallace. Some of you guys may have heard of him. Um, he wrote this uh, book called Cold Case Christianity. A homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. Again, when I say Gospels, those four Gospels. And uh, he was pretty well known before, uh, before he became a Christian. Uh, he had, was actually on several uh, multiple crime-solving documentaries on, on TV. And he was known for solving crimes that had gone unsolvable for many years. Um, and uh, he was a very also outspoken atheist for many years. His dad was, a, was an atheist. Uh, he, he felt like he, in learning and thought the same thing. Uh, and when he and his wife started having children, they recognized, hey, we, from what he had said, he's, he's like, we didn't know what we were doing as parents. And so even though we didn't believe in the Bible or in Jesus, um, we went to church because we thought maybe they could help us with parenting, okay? Which still happens today, okay? As a Christian, I'm like, I need the church to help me with parenting. So they went to church and hopefully to help them with parenting and kid stuff. And uh, he heard one of those days, like first beginning going, he was challenged by the pastor that when he declared Jesus was the smartest man in the history of the world, in addition, all of Western civilization was founded upon the messages that he spoke. And when Jim heard that, Jay Warner Wallace heard that, he's like, there's no way that can be true. That, that, that has to be an overreach. But then he was like, well, I'm like a master investigator. I will investigate it and disprove him. And so he started investigating the truth of Jesus and the gospels if they're true. He became curious and decided to consider his, again, his kind of highly tuned, his technical skills to investigate the gospel narratives of Jesus. In the forensic evidence that he found, it wasn't just compelling, it ultimately convinced him, this is true. And if this is true, who Jesus is and proclaimed to be 
and what happened after is true. And I have to do something with that. In fact, one of the evidence that he said that stuck out to him the most that God used was what Luke says here, the overwhelming evidence of eyewitnesses to not only a historical Jesus, Jesus, but a miraculous testimony of Jesus proclaiming and doing things to make him be God and Savior and how that's recorded. And remember, when it comes to a homicide detective, how important witnesses are. And he's like, this is true right here. So we see in verse 2 the importance of uh, such eyewitness accounts. And then look at verse 3. Luke's careful account after following all things closely. I love this verse. Verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Um, I showed this before we started Mark in the early COVID days. Um, I'll read it to you in case you can't see the uh, text of it right here. But here's a meme in comparison of all four Gospels right here, all right? So Matthew, top left, says he started off saying, before I begin, let me give you the genealogy of Jesus so you know this is about a real person. John said, before I begin, let me explain why it's important to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke, as we just read in verse 3, and I'll explain, says, before I begin, let me tell you the backstory that led up to all of this. And then, of course, Mark from Mulan says, let's get down to business, okay? And he jumps right into it without talking about anything of the birth and prophecies or anything of the sort. But for Luke up there, that's true because, as he says in verse 3, I felt like it would be good having followed all things closely for some time past to write the orderly account for you. Again, I want to go into my appreciation for that, what that meant in a moment. But we also see here in verse 3, the introduction to this gentleman that he calls most excellent Theophilus, uh, who he's writing to. We don't know a lot about Theophilus. That, That name means loved by God or friend of God, which has led some to believe It was Luke writing to all Christians, and this was just a name of somebody that all Christians are loved by God and friend of God. Uh, But most throughout church history, uh, historically, and this includes myself, believe he was not this like general, the church, but he was a real physical Christian or believer, and he had a relationship, was close with Luke. Luke addresses him both here, and he also addresses him in the first chapter and verse of Acts. We know that uh, Theophilus had been taught about Jesus in in Old Testament scriptures, as the end of verse 4 says. And again, most in church history also believes that this is the the gentleman that generously commissioned or paid for Luke to undertake this massive writing project. They believe that's who this is right here. That's why he's writing back to him and what he recorded, what he studied, what he's now writing. After having carefully investigated all the facts about Jesus. And again, that's what makes this gospel out of the four that we're going to be studying here so unique. It is the most detailed account of our Lord and Savior's time on this earth, written by a historian physician who is a close colleague also of the Apostle Paul. Let me remind you, Luke doesn't even give justice to say a close colleague of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul refers to Luke in Colossians 4.14 as his doctor and dear friend a fellow co-laborer in ministry gospel work in Philemon 24. And remember, in 2 Timothy, his very last book that he wrote, the Apostle Paul, before getting martyred, 
while mourning that all have abandoned him, he shared, it is only Luke who is still with me. That's who Luke is. And now Luke, after following these things closely, is writing an orderly account of such things. When he says follow all things closely, know this, Luke expresses no interest in just passing on rumors, hearsay, or just religious propaganda. He wants Theophilus, and as God kept and preserved this as his word today, God wants us to have confidence that he received an accurate record of what really happened after he followed things closely and was financed to do so. means interviews with potential eyewitnesses, again, comparing what was written already. And then, look what it says here. He gives an orderly account. Oh, what an orderly account that Dr. Luke gives us. The narrative of Luke as a whole, following the chronology of Christ's death and his life. The ESV study Bible, in the introduction to Luke, says no gospel encompasses such a complete range of subgenres as Luke. From the Annunciation stories to the birth narratives to the lyric praise psalms, from the Christmas carols recorded, the prophecies, genealogy, the preparation stories, lots of stories, temptation stories, calling stories, recognition stories, conflict stories, encounter stories, miracle stories, pronouncement stories, parables, beatitudes, the sermons that was recorded that no other gospel has, passion story, the trial narratives, and of course the resurrection account. It's more detailed than any other one. The Gospel of Luke finds its unity, of course, in the person of Jesus and in his mission to seek and save the lost. That's why as we study it, that orderly account will start off in the next few months, the identity of Jesus, as this book gives a more detailed account of that than any of the other Gospels. The ministry and teachings of Jesus can be two different sections. Uh, again, sermons and, and, and parables more than any other account. Uh, kind of equal when it comes to some of the, uh, uh, well, miracles, a uh, more detailed account. It's probably just as many as Matthew, but his is more detailed because he's a doctor. Like, remember, this is a physician talking about supernatural. There's no way this can happen in this world today, accounts of Jesus' miracles. And then, of course, the Passion of Christ, where he gives details about especially the trials that had happened. And when, remember, when he wrote all this, an orderly account with this in mind, this continues in the book of Acts, through you and I and the church. What has happened here as the Spirit unfolds and reveals continues through us. He had that in mind when writing it in succession. And can I just say, can I just say how much I appreciate this verse in Scripture and get hope you appreciate as well? I personally appreciate it as one who has to do this, sometimes by desire and other times just by the absolute need and nature of my role and responsibility as a pastor. What I mean when I say that is, by desire, I feel like I do need to follow certain things closely and give an orderly account of things. Some of you guys know this, and I believe as a missiologist of sorts, I do desire, like to study certain things in culture. Part of that is to help reach culture but then also to speak into things, to give biblical worldviews and ultimately point people to the gospel for others to be saved. And so I appreciate, again, someone who talks about how I believed it is good for me to follow all things closely and to give an orderly account because I feel like 
You have to do this. We have to do this in this time and age to our teenagers, to our future generations, to you of certain things, right? But I will say this, not only when it comes to like using, studying, paying attention to culture in order to give biblical worldview, reach culture, my role as a pastor, I find myself doing this quite often. And I didn't know that was going to come with the calling. You take church discipline situations, for example. Like in that, within that, you have to follow all things closely and be able to give an orderly account and make hard decisions as one that needs to send and shepherd from those two items. I think of this situation did not happen here at this church, but previous past, past church and ministry. I think about one specific hard, hard situation. Again, dealing with teenagers, which it's always hard because of teenagers and Again, uh, their age and just, we had one, one situation where a girl had been sexually abused by a relative, and she was very much hurting and broken because of that, and in a time of transparency and confession, she shared it with her Sunday school class. About three weeks, a month later, one of the girls from that Sunday school class mocking and making fun of her, told a whole bunch of other kids that she likes sleeping with her family and making fun of and portrayed it as a thing that she, she initiated. And of course, when it comes back to her, she is as hurt as one would be in such a situation. And of course, mama bears on both sides are defending both of their kids. And so I never knew this is part of ministry. I had to go back, find out exactly what was communicated in Sunday school class, which, by the way, I knew that day because the Sunday school teacher came to me. I actually had already talked to the parents and found out person was in jail, that they had solved the situation. They feel like she just shared it because, again, you kid teachers, you know what it's like working with kids. You have the gate keys to the church. And so she just opened and shared on that. I knew about that already. And then I had to get the other six kids that heard the other girl say that in a mocking type way and get them in to hear each one of their separate accounts. I had to make sure that they weren't just friends with the other girl and that they were just going to be. I had to show and prove that, hey, this girl doesn't even know that person. This is a friend group right here. And I have to give an orderly account of both families and parents and then figure out, how do we reconcile this situation? And that's needed. And church, I'm going to be honest with you all. It's why when COVID happened, we have to figure out some of those things, follow things closely, give an orderly account of why we make certain decisions. It's why we rolled off to be autonomous. And we had to give and a quarterly account over the things that had passed and explained exactly what we felt led to this. It's why I built up initiative. Why we have to pay attention closely to certain things, certain conversations, and do the best that we can to give an orderly account. And it's hard. I did not know I was signing up for all of that as a pastor and beyond that as a Christian. And I will say this. It's worth it because someone has done that for the purpose of everything we do. Someone has paid close attention 
and revealed and showed through this orderly account, Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. And they wrote and recorded why we do what we do. Let me tell you this. I wouldn't do any of that if it wasn't for someone doing that with this in the scriptures. What we know to be true of who Jesus is and what he has to offer is why we as the church endures in hard things to do our best to lead us forward in the mission that specifically Luke shows that he came to seek and save the lost. That we reach people and we reach families and we reach individuals for that gospel message because we know this is true. Somebody's done the work and God revealed it. That leads to our third point and last verse here, the certainty of our faith in Jesus. Verse four, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. If Christianity is certain, we know Jesus has fulfilled all promises made in the Old Testament, what he's talking about here, that Theophilus was more likely taught, and that he keeps also his promises with us today. And that is especially true in part of Luke's point here in verse 4, as he mentions the things that Theophilus had been taught. Of course, that's important for us to receive, not as one who's maybe grown up under Old Testament promises awaiting the Messiah, unless you are a Messianic Jew in here. But by God's grace, on the other side of it, to see how Jesus already fulfilled it, yet accepting and receiving it today. However, beyond just the Old Testament promises, we need to have certainty, church, of the scriptures and what they reveal in the gospel and God's plan and the certainty of our faith in Christianity as a whole today. In fact, New Testament scholar J. Gresham Machin points out how Luke wants Theophilus to have that certainty here in verse 4, like we should have that certainty. He says, quote, unquote, this careful method to bring certainty of who Jesus is is a fundamental need of the church, which is today often ignored. After interest in Christianity has been aroused, after faith has been awakened, the Christian feels the need of a deeper intellectual grounding of the faith. That is in him. And again, that's why I appreciate Luke as it, as it, as it details that. This carefully researched, documented account, complete with eyewitness testimony, is offered for Christians of every age to know with certainty that Jesus Christ is truly Savior and Lord. That these events in Luke really happened and we knew, know the true and needed identity of Jesus through them. And it can help show and share that needed identity for others to embrace and receive him as their Lord and Savior. And we can have a certain faith in certain ways. That doesn't mean there's absolutely no room or space for questions or doubts as we sang when singing God is good this morning. But we don't live in such doubts. We don't camp there. That we can test this in ways and he gives certainty. In the Christ-centered exposition Luke commentary, Tabidi, a pastor in D.C., said, A belief isn't worth having if you can't be certain it is true. Christian, Christianity is the only certain and therefore trustworthy faith. It's why I always go back and remember what Tim Keller had pointed out in his book, Center Church, when talking about spiritual longings of people and giving six of them as he shared the appeal, many will come to God just out of appreciation 
for the attractiveness of truth. Know this, church. Christianity can be tested and trusted. You can test and you can trust this. If you've ever felt like you must check your mind at the door before becoming a Christian or going into church, know that is a lie. Both mind and heart is satisfied through this book and what it reveals, especially as it reveals and shows us Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Conclude kind of with this story. Uh, yesterday, I had the uh, great honor, privilege to attend with my two oldest kids who are in the student ministry here, a student seminar in Versailles on sexuality and gender taught by Pastor Sam Albury, um, who's a pastor in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, but originally from England. Dr. Herschel York, who's a dean at Southern Seminary and uh, will uh, actually more recently going to be retiring from uh, Buck Run Baptist Church from Frankfort, Kentucky. He's been a long-standing, amazing, decades-long minister there. And he said last night, Sam Albury is one of the most important teachers, thinkers, and writers in the evangelical world today, especially on that topic. And which I will say real quick, I'm very grateful for a student minister who provides such opportunities and such things. And yesterday, in one of the seminar lectures, he shared three reasons why we and why he came to follow Jesus over personal desires, over sexual fulfillment, over self and others. And I won't go into all three, but the first thing he did say, which led to the other two, was because of who Jesus is. That he realized that I don't have a lot of certain authority to trust in my desires and self. I have a culture and world and friends telling me I should trust in them. But I have to compare that to Jesus, the ultimate authority, because who I felt, how he proved himself to be who he was. Because with what Luke studied and what we will be studying in the life and ministry account of Jesus Christ, there is enough proof that Jesus was God who walked on earth and he truly is the creator, the Messiah, the Savior, and King, and that it's true. And if true, listen, listen up here. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And if it's true... He loves us better than we can love ourselves or our friends in the world can love ourselves. And we would be foolish to not follow or trust him over ourselves and others. Oh, church, let me encourage you. Study this with us in the next few months and beyond. Some of you have grown up in church and you have forgotten who Jesus is in certain ways. And some of you, maybe this is a little bit new and you need this. And some of you need to invite someone to hear more fully of exactly who Jesus is. And how that was recorded here and can be tested and trusted for what they need in this life. All such spiritual longings that Jesus specifically addresses in his identity being revealed in his birth and childhood the next few months. Later, when we hit his ministry and teachings, and ultimately through a detailed account of his death and resurrection, God has sent us to share this, and we can do so with certainty. And as we even sing this next song, I ask, is this your mindset? 
Is this your heart's desires? Is this your prayer of sorts as we sing it? Send me to share with the world what Jesus shared in his gospel. I came to seek and save the lost. Send us to share that with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Even the miracles that were involved for you to give us not only what's been recorded, as it not only shows what is true, but again, as you speak to our hearts, as you bring life out of death, as you reveal true love and show it's what we need. It's what we need, what we are created for. And so God, I ask, Lord, I ask, Lord, that there will be great presence and power of your spirit as we study this book. That will not only move and change our hearts, our lives, our community groups, our church, but Lord, it will send us on mission to seek and save the lost as well, Lord. And that we can have certainty that you are who you said you are. And that that changes everything. God, I pray, Lord, again, that you use this in wherever we're going through right now. Whatever we've been through. Whatever we will go through months, maybe even years from now. As this solidifies and assures us of who you are and what we need. We thank you. I pray, Lord, that we sing this song as a prayer. We trust you in your name, Jesus.